on air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And today, the busy northwest farmer enjoying the busy time. Uh, we're standing in a pretty good spot at the moment. We're in the middle of, a, of our home farm. Red soils, planting potatoes. Uh, we've got some peas beside us, some poppies on the other side, tulips far away, some pyrethrum, and some onions on the far side as well. And from the green fields of Ireland to Tasmania's northeast. Yes, our peak breeding season in Ireland is the end of April, May and June. And this would be our off-season, so we wouldn't have very much work at home breeding in the breeding side. So it facilitates me to come here for, to do the peak breeding season in Tasmania. The AI technician from Ireland busy with cattle in Tasmania's northeast. That story coming up, as well as the busy farmer in the northwest of the state, keeping the crops humming along, especially the four peas. G'day, Tony Briscoe with you on this Tuesday, where in just a moment we introduce you to the new Chief Executive Officer, of the Tasmanian Farmers and Graziers Association. Also today, Australian and American scientists teaming up to create the first vaccine for African swine fever. And we look at the latest research into fall armyworms as well. As always, we'll check the latest on the weather and take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 922 936. That number, 0438 922 936. First up today, the Tasmanian Farmers and Graziers Association is shortly announcing a new chief executive. Nathan Kalman is a qualified master brewer with a keen interest in agriculture. To find out more, Fiona Breen caught up with the president of the Farmer Advocacy Group, Ian Saw, and the new CEO a short time ago. This is an exciting day for TFGA and the members of TFGA with the announcement of uh, Nathan Kalman taking on, in the new year, the uh, CEO's position. So there's been a, a bit of a break there where you haven't had anyone in that position? No, look, there's been no break. In fact, um, Alastair Cameron has been the interim CEO and he's just done an absolutely sterling job um, uh, tidying things up, keeping things moving, um, appointing some new staff. Uh, so we haven't stopped moving. We've kept going on the interim, which is great, but we're very, very excited um, with Nathan coming on board. Okay, well, I believe we've got Nathan on the phone. Uh, Nathan, congratulations on your new role. No, thank you very much. Uh, what do you bring to the role? What, what's your background? Perhaps give listeners a bit of an idea. Yeah, so um, I guess my incumbent role that I'm, I'm about to move out of is the brewery director at James Doak. So I've been in the brewing industry for 16 plus years, but my background is in food science. And I've always had a very keen interest in farming and agriculture. And um, yeah, I guess I'm really keen to hit the ground running understand the pressures on members and I guess the support that they require to prosper and grow the industry in Tasmania. So what do you mean your background's in food science? So um, I studied an a undergraduate degree in, in food science at the University of Adelaide and um, specifically looked at you know the agronomic conditions of how barley was grown on the production of beer. Okay, and then use that that sort of knowledge in your uh, career uh, in the beer industry. Absolutely, absolutely. But um, yeah, also have a very you know fond interest of you know the agriculture sector generally because um, yeah, it's just so important to a state like Tasmania. So you're uh, coming into the TFGA in January and hope to hit the ground running. 
Absolutely, absolutely. I can't wait to get on board. So, Ian, so what sorts of things do you think uh, Nathan will, will need to deal with and what are the, some of the hot topics? Gee, Fiona, they keep coming thick and fast. Um, I think Nathan undersold himself a little bit. I mean, he comes with um, enormous business skills, strategic skills, communication skills, marketing skills. But more importantly, he comes with, um, with uh, people skills and he understands that for TFGA to be successful, there has to be a value proposition, but we need to be seen, heard, and more importantly, acted upon. And there's a range of issues that are coming up for TFGA that Nathan will be having to sink his teeth into. You know, there's stuff like the EPBC Act review that's coming up. There's native forest logging on private land that's coming up. There's compulsory acquisition. There's renewables. There's electronic ear tags. I mean, I could keep going um, for hours, but I think the beauty of uh, Nathan's skill set is that he's highly strategic and TFGA have got their strategic plan um, and we're looking forward to uh, Nathan guiding us through the implementation of that strategic plan. Well, Ian, so you've had a few uh, CEOs in the last few years, so but what's going to be different, do you think? Oh, look, there's a, look, there's a range of things that are going to be different. I mean, look, Fiona, you know, for the, for the board and the members of TFGA, um, having two CEOs in two years. The optics aren't particularly um, all that pleasant. However, it was out of our hands. I mean, COVID and family was one um, and being offered another job was another. <clears throat> but what we've got now, <clears throat> which is really important, is we've got this strategic focus. The board are there with a strategic focus. There's a strategic plan. Um, and, of course, who wouldn't want to be working in and for the best industry in the world, and that's providing food, fibre and pharmaceuticals. Well, how is your membership going? What are the what are the numbers like? Are they static? Have they gone down or up? No, look, in fact, it's interesting. All the state farming organisations around Australia are having trouble with uh, maintaining membership at the moment, TFGA. All of our all of our indicators are moving. I was going to say north, but it's probably northeast east. So they are moving in a in a slight upwards tra- trajectory. So that's um, all the stuff that we measure, which is based around membership, communications, um, engagement. But the actual membership numbers are slowly increasing. Um, our, our, our finances are stable. I mean, we're coming into a period where uh, TFGA and the board going to have to think very, very carefully because, of course, red meat prices have basically halved, so that's going to put pressure on TFGA, so we're going to have to find better ways of doing business and finding revenues, etc. but that's no different to the farmers themselves anyway. President of the Farmers and Graziers Association, Ian Saw, and you heard from the new CEO, Nathan Kalman, talking there to Fiona Breen. Let's head up to the northwest now to some colourful paddocks filled with peas, poppies, pyrethrum and tulips and potatoes. Meg Powell caught up with young farmer Adam Griffin on a stunning day just as he was planting his last few rows of potatoes for the new season. Uh, we're on a farm up at Morlair, inland from Boat Harbour. Yeah, just a uh, typical cropping farmer. <laughs> Paint us a picture of what we're seeing today, what we're standing in front of. Uh, we're standing in a pretty good spot at the moment. We're in the middle of a, of our home farm. Um, red soils, planting potatoes. Um, we've got some peas beside us, some poppies on the other side, tulips far away, um, some pyrethrum, and some onions on the far side as well. And planting some potatoes at the moment. Yes, we're, 
well and truly. We're at the tail end of our season now with potatoes. Looking forward to finishing and getting into the next job. Can I just say the smell here is delicious today. You can really smell that earth. You must, it must be exciting to come into spring where the earth kind of wakes up. Yes, um, the spring is definitely my favourite time of year when we're busy and getting into it, and especially on days like this where a nice bit of a breeze about and the sun's out and got the shorts on, so it's all good. <laughs> uh, what's, what's happening on the farm at the moment? So you're well into potatoes, nearly finished, in fact. Yes, um, nearly finished potatoes. We've just got a couple more paddocks to go after this. We are currently virusing tulips, uh, watering uh, a lot of things at the moment, so it's dried right out here. Um, about seven, eight irrigators get, that will be going tonight. Well, how is the season going, particularly rainfall and, and irrigating? Uh, it's been a dry start to spring for us. Um, we have had no rain to speak of whatsoever and any that has came has been blown away with the wind afterwards or before. Um, yeah, the wind's been up so it's been challenging to irrigate. Um, it's no good wasting power and water when it just gets blown away. Um, challenging spraying but we're managing. It's just got to make the most of every opportunity and when the weather's right we're um, into it so no all was good. Adam uh, last time we spoke to you you talked a bit about coming back to the farm after a few years off any regrets it's been a, a rough few years in farming particularly in potatoes actually uh, any regrets coming back? Um, no regrets none at all um, the lifestyle of farming is great there's a great bunch of people in the district community um, that have helped me along a lot and every year I found there's different challenges as everyone that's in the game knows and you just apply yourself and make it work one way or another. <laughs> it's kind of, it's like puzzle solving as, as you go along or something each year. That's right yes um, you think you've not so much got it all worked out but that problem that you had last year will never come back again next year or might come back but it'll be a different set of circumstances. Um, we've got no say in the season or the um, elements or anything like that so we just take it as it comes. So challenges this year like you said before it's much drier, electricity's gone up, water's probably going to be in pretty high demand. Are these kinds of things that you're already thinking about now? Yes, definitely. Um, it's been such an early start to the irrigation season for us. We're monitoring what's yeah, dam levels and um, this, that and everything else. But we are pretty fortunate where we are and we've set ourselves up there to be pretty water uh, efficient and got the got a bit of capacity there to make everything work and it all comes back down to what you're planting and um, the water usage of that particular crop so we just manage it always in a worst case scenario I suppose so like if it's going to be a dry summer you're always you're always planning for that. Adam over in the distance there there's a very colourful field although not as colourful as it was full of tulips and a few people walking around what, what are they doing? Uh, so we've got a crew of guys over there um, called uh, virusing, so taking out anything that doesn't need to be there pretty much, so um, any different colour, all separate varieties over there, so separate colours, and so we're taking out any rogue ones and any any flowers that have got disease in them and, and all that kind of stuff, so that's a quite intense process that lasts for a, uh, up to six weeks really, yeah. Ooh, so they're looking at pretty much every single flower over there? Yeah, they're trying to. <laughs> it's a pretty daunting job. Um, there's five hectares over there, so 
up and down all day until the job's done. And so when you say rogue ones, you mean, say there's a strip of pinks, sorry, I don't know the, the name of that variety, and there's a, a white one in there. You want to sell these bulbs as a packet maybe that are the, the pink one, the pink variety, so you're getting rid of the white? Correct. So we... Yeah, we're all separate colours because um, we that's how we sell them, you know, particular varieties there, and if there's a rogue one in there, we need to get rid of it, so it just um, gets eliminated. <laughs> and sadly, the, the flowers themselves, not really important to you guys at, at your end of the process. No, so we're in the um, bulb production. We're not interested in the flowers as such, so for us, the flower, it's a visual thing, but it's more of a, um, we're just having a look at it there to see it, it displays issues with with the flower itself so once we've seen those issues and they've been rectified we are literally going through with a machine called a de-header and um yep they're Dead. gone <laughs> so we're just taking off the top of the, the the petals and leaving as much foliage and the stem there as possible and that or what that process does is um, puts all the energy from the, the the plant puts all the energy back into the bulb rather than the flower, so which makes a bigger and better bulb. And the bulb will multiply and give us some planting stock for the following years to come and keep our stock levels up. So if people have got tulips at home, they should chop the heads off and get rid of the flower, and then it might multiply for next year. Uh, do a better job, I suppose, but uh-huh. um, it is no issue with um, letting the tulip do its natural thing either they'll come back next year and there'll be enough there to look at uh any tips for the dry summer for anyone out there listening my tip would be if you think it needs watering you're probably too late (laughs) oh no okay (laughs) good tip more leo farmer adam griffin Talking to Meg Powell about the busy spring chores on the farm where things are looking a bit dry. The irrigators have come out a lot earlier than normal. Still to come on today's edition of The Country Hour, look at a couple of diseases and pests, African swine fever and fall armyworm in just a moment. Dry. Maybe I'm the only one that thinks this is cool, but... With Lucy Braden. What was going on with the clouds? Rook, was it aliens? I'd like to be able to perpetuate that theory, but it's actually altocumulus lenticularis clouds. In Latin, that stands for like a lens, but they often do look like flying horses or UFOs. And they do occur downstream of hills or mountain ranges. Drive with Lucy Braden from 4pm. I love ABC Radio Hobart. Ciao. On air, online, on digital and the ABC Listen app. This is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Australian and American scientists are teaming up to work on the African swine fever vaccine that would be the first of its kind in the world. African swine fever has never been detected in Australia, but it's widespread on the country's doorstep throughout Southeast Asia. Swine fever experts from CSIRO's Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness will evaluate a vaccine developed by US biotech firm MBF Therapeutics. Angus Furley spoke with the centre's Dr David Williams about their partnership. We've partnered with a US company uh, called uh, MBF Therapeutics who have developed uh, a vaccine platform called TMAX, which targets uh, T-cells of the immune system, which are one of the parts of the immune system that, that's very important for um, producing uh, adaptive immune responses following infection. Uh, so they have developed a, a candidate vaccine for African swine fever, which we're working with them to evaluate uh, in our high containment laboratories in Geelong. 
Okay, and the lab at Geelong, it's one of only very few in the world that is is placed to do that sort of evaluation work? That's right, yep. So uh, as I mentioned, we're a high containment laboratory, so that means we can work with um, viruses that are that are high risk for, for livestock or humans uh, safely um, in contained laboratory facilities. So you're actually working with live samples of African swine fever? We do, yeah. We, we do research and we also uh, perform diagnostics. So clearly uh, containing that virus being paramount because of the, the risks that it poses. Yeah, absolutely, Angus. And just tell me a bit about African swine fever, David, and why the development of this vaccine is so important. Uh, so African swine fever um, is a, a contagious um, and highly lethal uh, disease of pigs. It only infects pigs. It doesn't infect humans. So eating infected pork uh, is safe for humans. But it, it's really devastated the, the global pork industry over the last 15 years. Um, it's gone from uh, being confined to Africa to now spreading to, to five continents around the world. Uh, and it's on our doorstep. It, it's, uh, it emerged uh, in Timor-Leste and, and, and Papua New Guinea. Uh, in the highlands there, so it's a it's considered uh, one of the top biosecurity uh, risks and threats to Australia, and many experts in the animal health field can now consider African swine fever to be the worst uh, livestock pandemic in history. Okay, so you've got this vaccine candidate. You're going to do this uh, evaluation work, as you said, and I'm I'm sure that's highly scientific and technical. But in in broad terms, what does that evaluation work involve? What that work will involve is an initial phase uh, that will be based in the laboratory. So we'll be doing laboratory testing uh, on that vaccine um, using our uh, African swine fever research tools. And we'll be evaluating how well that that vaccine uh, works in inducing that T-cell immunity that I mentioned before. And the next stage will be to move to to pigs. Once we're satisfied that we've got the candidate uh, in an optimised form, we'll then move to evaluating the uh, the, um, the candidate in pigs, uh, which of course is the natural host, and, and that's our our target species for vaccination. Have you made a start on that work? We have, yes. We've made a start recently. So we've um, we've uh, recruited a, a postdoctoral research scientist and um, have all of our approvals in place uh, to begin the laboratory phase. Uh, and that that has just recently started, actually. So we're we're raring to go and and very excited to uh, see what results we can achieve. And have you got a rough timeline on on how long this work will take? It can vary. It depends on how successful those initial experiments are, and whether or not we need to go back and work with MBFT to reoptimize uh, the vaccine candidate and, and tweak it so we can improve the performance. Um, once we've got a candidate, um, it can take about a year or so to get through the, the animal trials and experimentation. Uh, and then, of course, there's the, the regulatory phase, which can also be time-consuming. And just on the timeline, I suppose we did have demonstrated to us during COVID that uh, if the imperative is there, some of these timeframes can be, can be expedited. Yes, that's right. Um, we, we we would need to resource that. I mean, obviously in COVID, that was extremely well resourced around the globe in hundreds of different laboratories. So that's something we would need to look at um, to to expedite. But yep, in theory, we can we can do that. Are there already swine fever vaccines on the market? Yes, there are, uh, but in a limited way. So the first generation vaccines have have recently been 
commercialized and, and approved for use in in Vietnam in particular. So that's been Vietnam has been leading the way with um with with producing these vaccines and evaluating them in the field. Uh, there are other countries that are now looking at, at those vaccines and have signed, um, or distributors in those countries have decided, uh, signed licensing agreements and distribution agreements with those Vietnamese companies, uh, but they're not yet um, in widespread use in, in those countries and, and their various countries in Southeast Asia. The issue with the first generation vaccines is that they're uh, modified live vaccines and these vaccines uh, as a vaccine type have in, inherent safety issues in that they have the potential to revert back to a virulent form. Okay, but the vaccine that you're working with is different. That's right. So it's a it's a non-live virus vaccine platform. It's a it's actually a DNA vaccine platform that uh, MBF Therapeutics have developed. So in that respect, it's it's um, inherently safe. It uh, doesn't have those issues that the live uh, virus vaccines um, have. And. It might be early stages, perhaps, but for you, what promise does this vaccine hold? Well, for us, we're looking at it as, as a second-generation um, safe vaccine platform that will um, get around those safety issues that the, the first-generation vaccines have. Um, and it can also be used in all production stages of, um, of pig production uh, so that the first-generation vaccines currently can't be used for sows and also for pigs with underlying health issues. Just lastly, for farmers, meat processors out there listening to this who have been, I suppose, operating with the fear of African swine fever hanging over their heads for, well, years now, what sort of hope do you think they should place in this potential vaccine? Um, I think we're being cautiously optimistic about how successful we can be in, in developing this vaccine. I should say that vaccine development is is something that, that can fail and many vaccines do uh, or don't progress to commercialisation um, after their development. But we're hopeful um, as our MBFT that we've um, got a really effective platform here that will uh, deliver on a safe and effective vaccine uh, against all of the African swine fever types that are circulating. Dr David Williams, African swine fever expert at CSIRO's Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness, speaking there with Angus Verley. Fall armyworm has been knocking over hundreds of different crops and plant species across the world and for the last three years it's been in Australia, in Tasmania as well. Moves fast and Aussie researchers have been on its case analysing its genetic diversity on a global level. The reason to detect when different armyworms are combining to form new ones and to see if they're resistant to pesticides. CSIRO researcher Dr Rahul Rani tells Megan Hughes Australia actually was invaded by the pest on several fronts. In most invasive species or uh, in, in incursions of invasive species, we expect a single major introduction and irradiation. But in the case of fall armyworm, that wasn't the case. What we found even within the first few months of the incursion was that the population that came into Queensland was a, was significantly different com- when compared to the population that came into Western Australia. So there, was, there were two introduction events at the onset in the first year. And in the second year, we actually found that there were a few other introductions that have happened. The second thing we found is with even within Queensland, two neighbouring populations did not have the same putative origin. That sort of highlighted to us that the bugs probably not coming into Australia in one location or two locations and radiating. It's being introduced multiple times and that can only happen through trade. And did you find similar things when you looked at the populations through Asia as well? 
in an earlier study we published, we showed that populations such as the Malaysian population, which we do believe is either a reservoir population or uh, close to a reservoir population, had three independent, completely independent populations quite close to each other. A similar uh, discovery was made both when comparing Myanmar and its the closest population in China, as well as a few populations within China. So it does repeat itself. It does tend to be a, a global trend, but it, it is also a difficult one to predict. Do you know, like, say, the population in Western Australia, where that particular, if there was a particular trade route that it came from and same with the one that came in in Queensland? So the Queensland population looked a lot similar to the one that came uh, to the Papua New Guinea populations, whereas the ones that we found, uh, that, that tra- traced back to populations in Yunnan in China, but we do feel that there is a bridgehead population that is a population, a reservoir population that sort of sits in between or feeds these populations, which has not been identified yet. Whereas the Western Australian population actually looked a lot similar to populations from Malaysia and India. So that may be an entirely different trade route that it has come through. So these are two very different uh, introductions. So with the significant different populations in Australia. What does this mean for management in Australia? What we do is while we're studying populations, we are also studying things such as the likelihood of resistance to insecticides and so on and so forth. When it comes to management within Australia, I think an informed approach is the best approach and that would involve continuous surveillance of those populations and a clear identification of what their resistance patterns look like, because we have done extensive studies on the genetic signatures of the resistance patterns, and then using those to inform management strategies. So it may not be something as generic as a particular management strategy was for this part of the country versus the other. I think it has to be a bit more nuanced, and it would have to update itself every couple of years. So it's not just a case of, well, this particular type of insect in WA requires this type of pesticide, whereas this one in Queensland requires something different? We don't know that yet. So I think that is, that is the what the last time we did this study was about a year and a half ago or two years ago. I think we'd need to update that to uh, be a bit more, have a more con- confirmed answer to that question. I think it, it would generally get down to a balance between what pesticides are used as well as what alternate strategies are used for controlling as a part of integrated pest management, which Australia has a pretty good track record of doing. We would sort of have to keep on updating our knowledge of how they respond to the various insecticides as well, because like I said, they, they, gather, uh, they, they gain resistance quite quickly. Where to from here when it comes to this study? So this has highlighted a couple of important things for us. The bugs don't really respond or move in the patterns that we expect. Insecticide resistance does come up pretty quickly, which uh, sort of provides a unique opportunity for biopesticides and other uh, other pest management strategies, which CSR is also working on at the moment. And so we have a significant amount of effort ongoing in the area of identifying microbial biopesticides, as well as even looking at genetic biocontrol uh, or any of the control strategies, if they may be feasible or usable for fall armyworm. And that really may be one of the more promising future investments as well as a future direction, simply because the chemicals don't seem to face these guys. CSIRO researcher Dr Rahul Rani speaking there with Megan Hughes about the full armyworm and the latest research. Coming up on the Country Hour, 
changes, or at least a change for an Irish farmer who's loving life living in northeast Tasmania. And also we'll check the latest on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Loretta Loberger. Good afternoon, Tony. A spokesperson for the Israeli army says they found evidence of hostages being held in the basement of a Gaza hospital. Daniel Hagari says tunnels operated by Hamas have been found underneath Al Rentisi Children's Hospital in Gaza, containing weapons and evidence of hostages being held there. Hamas has released a video today saying it's willing to free 70 hostages in exchange for 200 children and 75 women allegedly detained in Israel in addition to a five-day ceasefire. Authorities in the Ukrainian region of Kherson say at least two people have been killed in heavy shelling and rocket fire by Russia. Houses, a hospital and an administrative building have been damaged in Kherson city. Tasmania's former governor says she's hopeful the state is still on a path to truth-telling and treaty, but admits progress hasn't been as quick as she'd hoped. It's been two years since Professors Kate Warner and Tim McCormack released their report on the pathway to truth-telling and treaty in Tasmania. And Queensland scientists have formally identified 48 new species of Australian spiders. Several of the spiders have been named after notable Australians, including former Totally Wild presenter and National Park Ranger Stacey Thompson. More news at one o'clock. Time now to check the latest on the weather with Brooke Oakley from the Bureau. G'day, Brooke. Good afternoon, Tony. All right, we better get into the weather. Rainfall. What have we got? Anything? There hasn't been a lot of rain around in the 24 hours to 9am this morning. There were some light falls about the west and the far south, with the highest being Zeehan, 11mm, and also Lake Margaret with 11mm. Since 9am this morning, the only significant rainfall has been 1mm at Tasman Island. A cold front did brush the south of the state early this morning, and we do still have light showers lingering about the west and far south. These will mostly clear during the afternoon. And we'll also start to see isolated showers developing about the northeast this afternoon as a trough develops in the area, but remaining fine and mostly sunny elsewhere. Tomorrow, isolated showers continue in the east with the trough hanging back there. Fine elsewhere until showers develop about the west and far south during the late afternoon and evening as a cold front approaches the state. That cold front will cross on Wednesday night and then Thursday will be the coldest day of the week with below average temperatures for most of the state. On Thursday we'll see showers about the west and south extending to the east during the morning and then easing in the evening and snow falls down to around 900 metres in the far south of the state. On Friday, the west to southwesterly winds continue with showers about the west and far south, but fine elsewhere and those temperatures will rebound back to close to average on Friday. And then on Saturday, there'll be showers about the west and south extending to the east during the day and then clearing the west in the evening, but remaining mainly fine along the north coast. Any warnings, Brooke? For today and tomorrow, there is a strong wind warning current for southern coastal waters from Tasman Island to Low Rocky Point. And tomorrow, there is also a strong wind warning for northern coastal waters from Stanley to St Helens Point. So if we look a little bit more closely at the coastal waters, today we have west to southwesterly winds at 15 to 25 knots, decreasing to 10 to 20 knots in the evening. And the winds are tending variable 5 to 15 knots about the northeast during the afternoon. The swells in the west and south are southwesterly of four to six metres, reaching up to seven metres in the southeast. And the wave rider buoy at Cape Sorrell is currently reading 4.5 metres. 
in the north a westerly around one metre, and in the east a southerly of two to four metres, reaching four to six metres in the south. And the wave rider buoy at Mariah Island is currently reading 2.2 metres. For tomorrow, southwest to northwesterly winds at 10 to 20 knots, increasing to 20 to 30 knots during the afternoon. The winds are tending variable 5 to 15 knots about the east during the morning and afternoon. The swells in the west and south are southwesterly of 4 to 5 metres, decaying to 3 to 4 metres during the day. In the north, a westerly to 1 metre, and in the east, a southerly 1 to 3 metres, reaching 3 to 5 metres in the south during the day. Betty Brook, thank you for that. Thank you. See you later, Brooke Oakley. From the Bureau, with the latest information for you. G'day, Maggie. She says, hi, Tony. I've heard of a few rogues, but never a rogue tulip. <laughs> the imagination is running right. Thank you, Maggie. And apparently the seal is on the banks of the Mersey River at Merseyley. He's been there yesterday and today, about 20 k's inland. There's another seal doing the rounds. The other seal, I think, is at Primrose Sands doing the rounds, <laughs> rounds of the houses, probably looking for something to, uh, to eat. Breakfast. A letter to my future. With Rick Goddard. Or my past self, Rodney Croom. I've written a letter to my 16-year-old self. You shouldn't sacrifice another minute to anxiety and fear. I live in a Tasmania which gay people move to. Buy every book you can afford and read from a new one every day. It's the best antidote to the tedium of work and the pettiness of the world. I love that line. Like, I open a book and I just like... Rick Goddard. I'm safe. Monday to Thursday from 5.30am on ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Oh four three eight nine double two nine three six. That number to stay in touch. Regulations aimed at protecting the environment appear to be getting much tougher in Europe. And in a country like Ireland, where cows outnumber people, farmers are trying to get their heads around running smaller herds to meet climate targets. Artificial insemination technician John Brosnan has seen it firsthand. He spoke to Larissa Smith about the changing face of agriculture on the Emerald Isle. Yeah, County Kerry is the southwest corner of Ireland. Killarney would be a very popular tourist town. Uh, Skellig Michael would be off of the Kerry coast. It was where some of Star Wars was filmed. And known for its farming. Yes, and known for its farming. All that area would be, yes, dairying and suckler farming and sheep farming. So you've left your county coming into winter now and and now coming into summer here. So this is the off-season for you. Is this why you're out in Tasmania? Yes. Our peak breeding season in Ireland is the end of April, May and June. And this would be our off-season, so we wouldn't have very much work at home breeding in the breeding side. So it facilitates me to come here for to do the peak breeding season in Tasmania. What got you into becoming an AI technician? This is sort of a, a new career for you in a way. Well, I was always interested in cattle breeding and I had my own dairy farm at home. And I was just interested in the genetics of the cows and kind of led me to doing the AI course and I used to do my own cows for a number of years and then an opportunity arose at home with Munster Bovine to um, go out on the road and be a technician and that was about 15 years ago 
So that's where it all started. And what are you seeing in terms of the genetic improvements on the farms that you've been involved with? Yeah, uh, farmers can pick bulls for different traits, uh, concentrating mainly on uh, fertility, milk solids, and uh, if the herd is lacking any one of those, they just pick a bull that will suit the cow to improve that traitability that she would be lacking. And with the sex semen now for the dairy herd, we can use sex semen on the, on the cows and uh, 90% guarantee that the cow will have a Frisian heifer calf and we won't be breeding Frisian bulls that there's no market for. And the, cow, the other cows then can be putting calf to a beef breed of Aberdeen Angus or Hereford where there is a market for them. And speaking of markets, how are things travelling uh, in the dairy industry and, and the price of milk um, at the moment in Ireland? The price of milk this year in Ireland has dropped a lot. It's probably back to half it was this time last year, but this time last year was exceptionally high. It wasn't a good year Farmers were probably just barely covering their costs in production because the uh, inputs of fertiliser and grain still remained high from the, I suppose, other influences in in Russia and and, and uh, Ukraine. Probably wouldn't be sustainable going forward to keep producing milk at that price unless there's a turn in the in the price being paid in the coming season. All these regulations are increasing the cost of production. Slurry storage for our long winters has to be increased. So building costs are huge at the moment and it's costing a lot to to put up all these extra tanks to hold our slurry. Uh, Stocking rates is being governed now by nitrates directives and a lot of farms have to cut back stock and then that means cut back their income. And if if they don't do that, they're forced to rent extra ground, and the the price of that has increased a lot as well. And it probably isn't feasible to to rent the uh, ground. So what you're saying is there's a cap on how many cows you can run. Basically, yes. It's it, it it's all down to the organic nitrogen output from the cow. And uh, it's calculated on the milk yields the cows give. You're only allowed so many kilograms per hectare in certain areas. And um, that's what will govern the amount of cows you can keep. And then in the case of just the land itself, we hear the term rewilding quite a bit coming out of Europe. Is this becoming more common on farms? Yes, uh, rewilding and rewetting will is what's been spoken about at the moment. There are, I suppose, eco-schemes to encourage hedgerow maintenance, hedgerow planting, uh, tree planting, uh, fencing off rivers and streams, putting up riparian zones to keep the pollution from the rivers. Any mountain or moorland that would have been reclaimed one time for grass production and beef or cattle production wouldn't be allowed anymore, really. And in certain places, they'd probably be just encouraged to let it go back to nature and let it get wet again like it used to be. Like a big bog. Like a big bog. And and get the mosses to grow. The moss is supposed to be a big uh, carbon uh, sink. So there's a big concentration put on that to help with the environment. We have environmental schemes 
just starting this year uh, to compensate farmers and encourage farmers to go down that road. Now, a lot of these farmers would tend to be lower stocked anyway, but that's where they're starting and get them to uh, to, to, to do these things to help nature and um, see can it improve things. And those farmers that, that don't want to go down that path, are they just getting out of farming? Yes, uh, that's it probably will. Uh, that's when they can produce the milk that they want to produce and make their money that way, that uh, they can't see any other way of making a living other than having to sell their farms probably at a later stage. What future do you see for broader agriculture in Ireland for the next generation coming through? The younger farmer coming up will have to take a lot of things into account. They'll have to be more mindful of the environment in their production. And a lot of young people aren't interested in farming because of probably a lot of, we'll call them, uh, being held back and not being left to do what they want to do, that they're being told what to do when it's being inspected. You're being inspected the whole time and having to account for all the uh, everything on the farm, from sprays to fertiliser. A register has to be kept of all that, all your inputs, and it all has to be available to the department. I just feel there's too much red tape involved in, in doing farming. You think you've got some more freedom in being an AI technician then? At the moment, at the moment, yes. (laughs) What do you enjoy most about it? Oh, meeting, going out on farms, meeting all the different people and the families, onto family farms there and meeting them and there's always something new happening every day and something to chat about when you call to the farm and travelling and a great opportunity now to travel the world. John Brosnan, he's an AI technician from County Kerry in Ireland, talking there to Larissa Smith, currently working on a farm in Tasmania's northeast for an AI company, artificially inseminating cows over the next few weeks. It was the renegade farm lobby group in the dairy industry that held angry rallies in regional Victoria, marched on Melbourne and called for an end to the dollar per litre milk. But time for fighting is over for farmer power as the organisation has decided to disband after a decade. Warwick Long spoke to outgoing CEO Gary Kerr about the achievements of his group and the decision to fold and throw support behind the traditional dairy lobby group they fought so hard against. Farmer Power for a while now has been trying to find a way forward. Uh, We've been working with members of the UNIV, even some with the Mark Billings crowd that have uh, left the UDV without advising their members what they were planning to do uh, in trying to unite dairy farmers. Bernie Free from the UDV has been in discussions with us probably for a while now, um, disagreeing on some things and agreeing on others, but we've always been able to work with him. And with Bernie now being made the president of the UDV, it gives us a lot more faith and with those that have left leaving, it gives us a lot more faith that the UDB can actually perform the way we hope it would all perform. So Farmer Power decided to give them a bit of free air. So we decided we throw our support behind the UDV and, and hopefully they can get it all together and um, move forward as we would hope the others would agree and join with the UDV to make it a force to be reckoned with. So is this effectively the end of Farmer Power then as a standalone group by itself? As a standalone group, yes, definitely. So, so um, the organisation's being disbanded. Yes, yep, yep. It will be. Um, we're in the process of doing that at the moment. Um, there's a lot of things we're pretty happy about and pretty chaffed about what we achieved. 
farmer power was extremely instrumental in the mandatory code being put in for all dairy farmers. And, and that is something very special for dairy farmers. And it's, as most dairy farmers would admit, it's seeing them out um, over the last few years. It's, it's been an excellent result for them. There was, yeah, I suppose, an issue of who was actually representing dairy farmers. It was all about the $1 litre milk and no one was taking any action to take on the supermarkets. So they decided to run the rally um, up to Melbourne, which had over a 1,000 people in attendance and garnished so much media coverage. Uh, at that stage, dairy farmers were doing extremely tough. So that's basically how farmer power came into being. Yeah, so January um, 2013, yeah, and you're deciding yeah. to, to wrap it up at the end of 2023, so a little over 10 years yeah, as a yeah. lobby group. You, you've already mentioned some of the achievements, but but has farmer power had an impact on the on the farming and the particularly the dairy landscape in that time, in your view? Well, oh, mate, the mandatory code, as I said, um, it was really pushed by farmer power. We ran an event, I suppose, with Sam Kekovich, if you might remember going around Victoria, promoting the mandatory code. At that stage, neither the ADF nor the UDV supported the mandatory code, um, but the states, all the other states, did, basically. So it came down to a vote with the ADF, and um, Terry Richardson had the final vote to support the mandatory code. But I do know that there was pressure put on Terry from um, David Littleproud, who was then Agricultural Minister. And then uh, progressed down the path of all the consultations and all the rest. And then it came to the point where we were told uh, all the consultations were being listened to, they'll make a decision. Then Bridget McKenzie took over as our cultural minister and she put out her first release on what the mandatory code was to look like and we all went ballistic. It was nothing like what it was supposed to be. It was all in favour of the processes. We went up to meet with Bridget. And uh, we travelled up there, three of us, and it took us three months to get the appointment. And when we finally got there, we were told she wasn't available. So I don't know if you remember, that's when I said she needs to either resign or be sacked. And that was basically a huge turning point because after that, I was contacted by her department. I got to go up and meet with Bridget. It was a frank and open discussion. And at the end of it, we agreed to agree. So um, that was the turning point for the mandatory code. And you uh, see, without farmer power, you do not think there'd be a mandatory code in dairy? Oh, no, definitely wouldn't have. Not, not, not the way it happened. You've got to understand the politics behind this. And it, it, the politics were huge, uh, especially with the processes involved. You got to, Well, we've always said farmer power was the little mouse that roared. It was a disrupting group, though, in mind. So were there any negatives to that farmer power brought to the discussion in your mind? No. <laughs> farmer power was the voice of, you know, reason, I suppose, the voice of accountability. That's, what, that's probably the best way to describe farmer power. Farmer power was the voice of accountability, and every industry needs that. It's still tough for dairy farmers. I'm not saying it isn't, um, but at least now they're on a level playing field. Gary Kerr, the outgoing CEO of Farmer Power, which has decided to disband. He was talking there to Warwick Long. Let's travel to the West Coast, the West Coast of Australia I'm talking about. West Australian Corey Bolt has just managed an incredible comeback. He's back doing what he loves, and that's shearing. Last year, the Catanning-based shearer found out he had a brain tumour, which turned his life upside down. been pretty crazy um i ended up having a seizure and uh, the ambulance took me to the hospital 
and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, so I went and had scans, and they found a five and a half centimetre tumour in my brain. They were going to race me or fly me from Albany to Perth for surgery, but they couldn't because I had swelling on the brain. So I had to go on these tablets for a week to get the swelling down. And um, yeah, then I went to Perth and had surgery, then went had six weeks of intense radiation, and yeah, then had 13 months off work. How long did it take for you to kind of ease back into shearing? Oh, I'm still trying to ease back into it. Yeah, it's pretty tough. Tough on the body, but yeah, no, I'm feeling pretty good. So when did you start back shearing? July, August this year. Yeah, somewhere there. How did it feel to come back into the shed and uh, be in the shed now? Oh, it's really good. Yeah, love every minute of it. Uh, yeah, no, it's pretty physical. But yeah, no, I love it. So talk me through um, how you got into shearing and your life as a shearer normally. Um, my whole family's been in sheds. My dad was a presser. I've been with Gavin for 18 years. My pop's been in sheds for 50 years. My uncle's a shearer. My other pop was a shearer. Yeah. So you're kind of born into yeah, it, weren't you? It, yeah, <laughs> and brought up in the sheds. How did it feel not being able to shear for those months that you were recovering? Oh, it's horrible. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, I just want to get out there and yeah, do what I love doing. Talk me through the day that you first picked up those clippers again. Oh, felt good. Yeah, no, I felt really good, but yeah, it was just didn't do much numbers because obviously... Had 13 months off. My body was trying to get used to it. Oh, yeah. Nah, I loved the first day back. It was mm. good. I was excited. Yeah, nah, couldn't get a smile off my face. If you don't mind me asking, what was it like for you when you were going through treatment? Uh, felt pretty cruel. Pretty horrible, actually. Yeah, stuffed up my um, sleeping routine. I used to sleep through all day, and I was up all night. Yeah, no, it was horrible. And, um, yeah, it felt pretty cooking that, like through radiation and all that. Mm. How are you feeling feeling now, generally? Yeah, no, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. It's starting to get my fitness back, so, yeah, yeah no, it's really good. <laughs> and who's in your team at the moment? i got young Isaiah, got Boss, got Darius, they're the shearers. Got my brother, Dylan, he's a presser. My other brother, Seth, he's a rouseabout. My mum is a rouseabout. And got Lean as a classer. How'd the team feel when you came back to yeah, work? I think they were happy. They were yeah, really happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I had the time off, I used to come out to the sheds and just see everyone. And, yeah, they were all happy to see me. So you never went away even nah, when you were recovering? No, nah, <laughs> nah. At least once or twice a week, I was coming out to the sheds to have a look and see everyone. From the whole experience, I mean, the last year that you've had has been so intense. Have you taken away any sort of lessons or things that you're going to carry with you for the rest of your life? Yeah, it's just, it's in your mind, really. You know, if you have a positive thought, then, you know, you can do whatever you want. Like my partner, she was stressing out for the whole thing, but I just kept, you know, I was positive. And, um, yeah, that's what got me through it, really. It's all in your mind. That's what kept me positive, really, is I want to go back to work, 
and do the thing I love, yeah. Yeah, good on him. Katangin based Shearer. Corey Bolt speaking there to Sophie Johnson about his return to work after undergoing treatment for a brain tumour. And you can read more about Corey's experience if you head to the ABC Rural website. Just search ABC Rural Katangin and Shearer, and the story should come up for you. That's our country hour for today. We'll be back after midday tomorrow.